This recording was originally a live Q&A, which took place back in February 2023. If you get better by 1% every single day, that's like 37x a year. That's an incredible gain. And the other one is compound interest. So just doing small steps but consistently allows you to, yeah, to use that compounding interest uh, phenomenon. And, and that's just really going to, that's really what's going to make the difference, not the yeah, how much weight you lifted today for five reps and then you're not going back to the gym for the next week. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Good afternoon, Cedric. Welcome back. It's, it's been a while. So since we last spoke, Sergano, it has been a while. You created a new venture studio. You broke the world record for most countries visited in 24 hours. How have you been? What's what's new in life? Well, life keeps uh, being interesting, um, or we keep it interesting. Um, quite a bit of travel since then. As you mentioned, the world record was a fun project. And uh, uh, I learned a whole lot about uh, regulations in Europe and other places um, uh, as it comes to aviation. Um, I learned a lot about weather and yeah, it, that's been a fun project last summer. And then of course, yeah, what I spend most of my time on uh, these days is, is still Tomahawk investing in early stage Web3 companies and the Venture Studio, Code and State, where we incubate and accelerate early stage venture uh, companies specifically on the internet computer and the internet computer i know it's a bit of a generic term but that's the name of the blockchain that Definity has launched and tell us a bit more about the vision behind code and state i'm curious where you want to take that project yeah of course so and i'll if you don't mind i'll step i'll take a step back first um sure. i am convinced that we gain qualities from blockchain technology that are uh, very interesting and allow us to disrupt certain industries. And I think we've seen that in finance, where being able to take out the middleman, having this trustless environment, immutability, um, unstoppability, uh, a new level of transparency and so forth, that's already helped us disrupt finance to some degree. Decentralized finance, I think most of the people watching the show will, will at least have heard that term. But I think it's much, much broader. I think what we've seen so far is kind of a prototype or a proof of concept for Web3. And what I compare it to is email for the internet. So the first application that we got to use when the internet became available in the 80s and 90s was mostly email and some like very static websites. And only once we had broadband internet, uh, that started in like 2003, four, where it was commonly available, only then we started to see applications like Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and all these other more interactive and richer web applications. And in Web3, I think we're still at the point where we only have ISDN um, because it's kind of clunky to use Ethereum. It's kind of hard because you first have to get tokens and you have to have a wallet. And there's lots of like uncertainties and things that just feel like, ah, is this really right? And it's kind of like sending an email from the command line in the 1980s and the early 90s, um, where it was only available to very few people in the general population. Okay, so very, very long intro, but the reason why I believe in the internet computer is because it does away with a lot of these challenges. Um, you won't need a wallet in order to interact with, a, with an application that runs on it. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, it is kind of the broadband internet in the sense that you can now host your entire application. So your front end, your back end, uh, even at some point your DNS server on a decentralized stack. So everything in one place versus um, the first couple generations of blockchains of so Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and Near and Solana and all these other that I uh, would say belong in this like second generation, they all are only basically like decentralized databases. So they allow you to have uh, tiny pieces of data stored on this public uh, blockchain, but then you can't really do much more than that. Um, and for everything else, for the user interface, you still need to rely on centralized uh, data providers or cloud providers. And that's why I like the internet computer, because it allows us to put everything uh, on one stack. Everything is decentralized. And so it comes much closer to this vision of disrupting industries with not just uh, tools that you need to be a professional to use, but with very easy to use websites. Code and State focuses on making it very easy to use the internet computer. So the Dfinity Foundation, they kind of built the core. They built uh, the machinery. And now Code and State builds the tooling and frameworks and processes. Uh, one layer on top of that, that makes it very easy for developers to build and earn on the internet computer. Mm -hmm. And what is your focus then there? Do you want to build these companies yourself? Do you want to invest in them or do you want to do both? What, what is your focus from the code and state company perspective? Yeah, and why would I uh, start another company if I already have the fund, right, where we could invest in such projects? So um, what I see is that the ecosystem is quite young and there are certain complexities that come with that. For example, um, uh, you want to be able to have a direct communication to the foundation and clarify technical challenges. But you also want to have access to talent. You want to have a way to educate people. If you hire like a great Web2 developer, then you've got to get them trained on Motoko, which is the language to use on the internet computer. And you want to be able to do that. So the Venture Studio takes care of all this overhead so that a founder that wants to start an idea already has started an idea and wants to take it to the next level so that they can focus purely on product and tech for the time being. They don't have to think about legal. They don't have to talk about uh, think about uh, taxes, they don't have to think about uh, how to recruit people. That's all abstracted away from them so that for one to two years, they can be fully focused on building a great product with great technology. And in that sense, and I'm explaining this in all detail because I think the term venture studio also like different people interpret it uh, differently. It's a bit yeah. not as standardized of a vehicle and funding mechanism as, for example, a, a pre-seed venture fund like we do with Tomah Tomahawk. Um, I, I truly believe that it's a great alternative to raising pre-seed funding. Why? Because you get the same type of runway. So when you come to Code and State, we'll give you one to two years of runway and we'll pay for all your resources. We'll pay you a salary as the founder. So we're not going to give you money, but we'll invest money and resources in you and your team for the next one to two years. And then after those one to two years, we help you go raise an external round, and in return, we get 20% in your business. So it's kind of like raising a pre-seed round. It's kind of like giving up that type of dilution for 500000 to maybe $1.5 million. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a great alternative because you, you get to focus on product and tech versus having to do, deal with all this overhead yourself. Amazing. We're definitely super excited you know, to follow your development there. Another thing I want to talk about, we briefly mentioned in the intro, is that you also broke the world record of visiting the most countries yeah. in 24 hours. What made you want to do that? Like, why was that even interesting or appealing to you? Okay, so 
I think ever since I was a child, I've always, you've probably also seen the Guinness World Record book, right? Is that something that, yeah. So I would sometimes read that and I was always fascinated with the different categories and the world record that, world records that people came up with. And I, um, I think from a very young age, I found this idea fascinating that you could be the best at something in, in the world, right? Or the fastest, biggest, whatever. Um, but I didn't really, this was not like a, a first, second or third or even 50th uh, priority. Um, but um, about eight or nine years ago, I saw a news article about someone breaking the world record for most countries visited within 24 hours. I thought that's kind of a cool record because it's so it aligns with my life. And also when I read about it, I saw that at the time, these uh, three guys, they broke it by using a car or multiple cars mm -hmm. and two public flights. And I thought, oh, oh, if only you have like a Cessna, if you can fly like a, a, a your private plane, then you must be faster than them probably, right? Like there, there must be a way to break this pretty easily. We say they did it with just a bunch of cars and two public flights. And so at that point, I think I this gets stuck in the back of my head. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with aviation. At some point, I do want to become a, a fully trained pilot. I take lessons every now and then. I, I enjoy the complexity of what it takes to pilot a plane, understanding the weather, understanding the three-dimensionality of it, um, the regulation, the, the technology, the, the plane. And so I think ever after that point, after reading about this world record, it was kind of stuck in my mind that I wanted to take a, a, a jab at it at some point. And then four years ago, yeah, 20, 2018, 2019, I uh, met a friend of, or I was chatting with a friend of mine about some business stuff. And then um, knowing that he also likes aviation um, before leaving the meeting, I was like, oh, this, by the way, I have this one idea that I'm just curious to get your take on it. And then I pitched him this idea to why, why don't we work towards this? Why don't we figure out if we can become the best at the uh, traveling to as many countries as possible within 24 hours. And he immediately was all over it. He liked it a lot. Um, it helps that he's already a trained pilot. Um, he has his own airplane even, um, and it's not like a, a single prop Cessna, it's a faster plane. And so in 2019, we first sat down and we started thinking about what is this gonna take? What are the circumstances that need to be right? Uh, where would this be possible? And I think that's where it also started for us. It's just researching different routes and where in the world could you even get to uh, more than 19 countries within one day. We pretty quickly realized it's it's in Europe um, that you can do that. Um, the, the density of countries is only high enough in Europe. And then we started like drafting lots of different routes. Um, then COVID hit and we knew we had to put it on the back burner, but we started, we kept like uh, thinking about different uh, waypoints and uh, ways to go. And then in early 2022, so just over a year ago, we started to think about, oh, maybe this year it's going to be feasible because COVID restrictions seem to be uh, lifted uh, step by step in Europe. Um, but then all our uh, original routes were starting or ending in Ukraine. And then, of course, the, the war happened. Um, so we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and reassess. And then finally, last summer, I think the last three months were most intense. We started doing um, trips to go and see certain places. Um, the way we wanted to do it is we wanted to use whatever mode of transportation was best. So if it was easiest to just run across the border or go from one country to the other, we would go by foot. 
but then uh, we would also use cars. Um, we used the helicopter in one place and also used the plane. And so we found all these. I, I think the key is like to find places where uh, two, three, or four countries are very close together. So you can fly to one place and then either use a car or walk across the border to these different countries and then head to the next stop. And uh, it was quite fascinating. We found some, I don't want to say errors on Google Maps, but uh, definitely inaccuracies. Um, places where we thought we could walk or drive that uh, turned out to not be walkable or drivable at all. Um, so we did a bunch of uh, trips last summer uh, to go see those places to optimize the route. And then in August 2022, we, uh, we attempted to break it. Uh, we started in Poland um, uh, and from there uh, drove uh, through Czechoslovakia and, uh, well, yeah, through Slovakia and Czech. Started in Czech at midnight, made uh, the first two stops by car, and then we got on the plane and started um, that trip. And uh, by about 2 p.m. that day, so after about 14 hours, we equalized the world record and then broke it with 20 countries. And uh, at the end of the day, made it to a, a total of 32 countries. That's amazing. And what did you actually have to do? You know, when you visit a country and we saw in the video that you published, you had to get like a confirmation or something. Did you have to tell them beforehand that there was someone there to not lose too much time or how do you organize that? Yeah, so we spoke to all the airports. Uh, we let them know that we need an officially signed um, uh, kind of a, a confirmation from them that we were there with the, the two of us plus the plane uh, was actually there. Um, then we had to take a picture. Uh, we took the video as well. Um, in each place, we carried a GPS logger with us, a device that just got a GPS stamp every five to 10 minutes. Um, and I think that was about it. Yeah, and the, the rules um, are that we didn't have to go through immigration, but we did have to physically stand on the ground in each country. So it wasn't enough to just land with a plane or um, or, or with the car to just drive through the country, but we had to actually get out of the car, stand on the ground, take that picture um, where we were at an airport, get that confirmation document and then leave again. Got it, amazing. <laughs> So thank you for all these updates. They certainly happened a lot since we last spoke. Today, we also want to talk about investing in uncertain times. And, you know, you're very active in, in the whole blockchain and also crypto space, of course. And it seems like that since the FTX collapse, that the whole sort of ecosystem plunged into a crypto winter. So I'm really curious to ask what happened to your investments and your holdings? Yeah, so I... I think the winter probably started uh, about a year ago, right? And, and sometimes you don't realize um, when it started until a few months later, but I think a year ago is when we saw that uh, some critical pieces of the ecosystem just didn't turn out to work as well as they were supposed to be. There, there's some cases like FTX where there's fraud or at least extreme oversight uh, that was involved. Um, then we had Earlier during the summer, we had uh, the 3AC collapse, three arrow capital collapse. Um, all of that was kind of triggered with a stable coin, UST on Terra. So a US dollar um, equivalent on Terra that offered extremely attractive yields. Um, there was a protocol called Anchor where you could deposit that stable coin and it would give you, um, I think it was roughly 20% annually in yield. And uh, as we now all know that was not sustainable. The design of that stable coin was not um, 
was not sound um, because as soon as uh, th that started tanking, um, then the, the coin that was backing it started tanking as well, and it led to this death spiral. So I think some very expensive experiments that, that went wrong uh, last year, a lot of learnings. Um, but overall, uh, yeah, I think we've we've been in this winter for a year um, at Tomahawk and also with my personal investments. I I try to always invest in things that I think are fundamentally sound. So in that sense, I was not affected by um, any of these uh, fallouts. I I was always critical of FTX and I, I was certainly critical of uh, UST. I, I think everyone kind of saw that this will happen at some point. It was just a question of like, how long do you stay in these protocols and get this somewhat attractive yield um, until the system comes down and, and just doesn't work anymore? Um, I mean, it's a very simple thing, right? We all know that high yield equals high risk usually. And if, it's, if something is too good to be true, like 20% on US dollars, basically, th that's just something that you must assume as a careful investor that this cannot work in the long term like that. And especially like uh, thinking back a year ago, we were still in a in an almost zero or even negative interest environment, right? So it was twenty percent above what you could get from a normal bank. I think now banks have raised to uh, in terms of fixed income, you can sometimes get three, four, five percent. Um, I don't know the actual rate, but like this is much closer. This this is also a very different environment. Yeah, and it, it was a bad deal, right? Because even though 20% sounds like a lot, but if you compare it to like venture investments where you are okay with a total loss uh, because you diversify and because some of the investments will give you a 10 to 100x return after a few years, um, I think the the risk reward profile of Anchor and UST was uh, kind of misaligned because um, 20% doesn't, doesn't cover a total loss. Right. Exactly. And, you know, we all know that crypto investments can be very volatile. You also sort of know that when you sign up before you actually join. But at the same time, when this actually hits and affects you, you know, you see your holdings basically dropping by 80, 90 percent, maybe even even more in some cases. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that on a, on a personal level, on a psychological level and don't completely freak out and panic? Well, look, I, I think there's a few components. One is um, our venture portfolio, which is where I, the majority of my investments um, and my uh, brain energy goes to, uh, they did fairly well. Like they did not have exposure um, or not significant exposure towards any of, of these um, uh, parts of the system that, that came down. So, so for them, it was just a matter of like, can we make it through this winter? And I always advise companies to raise for at least 18 to 24 months because you never know what's going to happen in the next year. And also uh, to give you enough time to be able to to uh, just build until then. Uh, on the personal side, I mean, I've made it through some of these cycles already, right? I've been um, in crypto in with at least one foot since 2011, 2012. And so this is not the first time that I see prices go up and down. The way I think about it, um, I think is uh, for me, a lot of these investments, uh, they're not, I don't count them as like uh, liquid net worth in the sense that I, I know that they will fluctuate, but I don't trade them. I, I'm, an, I'm a long-term investor in the technologies that I believe in and I hold them whether the price goes up or down. Um, and yes, th there were a few days where also for me, that was uh, maybe a bit emotional or, or kind of frustrating. Um, 
but then, and this is the last point I want to make, I, is I, I believe that it's important, especially in those moments, to not let your emotions take over. You want to be um, consistent with your strategy, which is, uh, I mean, you to taught me a lot about this, right? Dollar cost averaging, um, having a system for how you want to invest um, if you want to get exposure to, let's say, the public markets, which also took a hit. Like, you, you just can't time the market. Um, so I, I'm not thinking I can time and sell when it's high and then I can buy when it's low. I just define a system for how I gain exposure and then I stick to it and I trust that long-term it's going to work out. Yeah, it's a bit like hitting the gym, right? Consistency is the key part. It doesn't matter if you go there and lift heavy weights once a month, you have to go three times a week consistently and then you can probably lift a bit less heavy, but you still get better results than the one time a month training. Yeah, I mean, the, the two concepts, I think we discussed it before, right? Like one is if you get better by 1% every single day, that's like 37x a year. That's an incredible uh, gain. And the other one is compound interest. Um, so just doing small steps, um, but consistently um, allows you to, yeah, to use that compounding interest uh, phenomenon. And, and that's just really going to, that's really what's going to make the difference. Not the how... Uh, yeah, how much weight you lifted today for five reps and then you're not going back to the gym for the next week. Exactly. And you mentioned other asset classes, right? I think something that was quite spectacular is that we have seen losses across all asset classes. Usually have some dropping and others gaining, but I feel like now over the past few weeks and months, we saw everything from bonds to stocks to real estate and of course also crypto, everything was dropping. What does that mean to you from an, an investor standpoint? Do you see more opportunity in that regard? Or do you think, oh, I have to rethink and adjust my strategy and my balances? Well, I, I would say that the reason why we see a lot of them correlated is because there's now a lot of the same investors in all these asset classes, right? Um, there was a time when crypto was kind of uh, uncorrelated with, let's say, the public markets. But uh, I think 2017, 2018, and then definitely 2020, 2019, uh, 2020, 2021 is when we saw a lot of institutional capital go into crypto. And uh, since those are the investors that also uh, trade a large part of the public stock market, we now see a lot of synchronicity between those two asset classes. Um, I would say one asset class that uh, hasn't been affected as much is probably real estate in Europe or specifically Switzerland. Um, there, it seems that even though uh, interest rates are rising, we don't see any sort of collapse because there's so much more demand than supply, uh, or at least that's my read of it. Um, whereas in other places, I think the U.S., where the stock, uh, the real estate market is a bit more liquid, uh, we've seen the impact on prices, especially compared to the highs of 2020, 2021. Um, what, what does it mean for me as an investor? Well, I, because I know that I want to be able to weather these storms and I want to be able to make it through uh, times when prices are lower and especially I want to be able to invest then, I typically keep a decent amount of cash. Um, I think right now it's, uh, if we talk about my uh, non-crypto assets, it's probably about 20, 25% that I've been holding in cash for opportunities like this um, to then reinvest in the stock market. And also I like, uh, I mean, now is the time again for like fixed income products, right? Like where you can get reasonable yields. I mentioned it before between like three and 5% with, with a fairly limited risk because your counterparty is uh, the established banks. It's not some crypto protocol. 
Um, so that those can be attractive ways to generate some yield now as well. I, th I think in general, as an investor, you're going to have um, a strategy for what you're doing in bull markets, meaning all prices go up, and typically that's being long. Um, you, uh, For the active part of your portfolio, you want to have a, a strategy for the bear markets when prices go down, um, which means going short. And then you also, and this is probably not as obvious, you probably want to have a strategy as well for when prices kind of stay within a narrow band. They go up one week and then they go down the next week. And one thing, um, maybe we can talk about this a bit, like one thing that I do with uh, some of my uh, cash during that time is just writing options. Uh, so I'm selling options, meaning um, someone else, a counterparty, can then sell me uh, an asset at a certain price. Or if I have the asset and I sell an option, they can buy it from me at a certain price. And because I, my belief is that the market will stay within this band, it doesn't really matter if I sell it one week and then buy it back the next week, I will keep roughly the same amount of assets by the end of when we leave this period of the market. I wouldn't recommend doing this with all your assets because there is always this scenario where things take off and then maybe you're left with just cash. Um, but using your assets to generate income, I think is, is something that can be fruitful during this time of the market. Definitely. You mentioned the large holding in cash, you know, to strike when opportunity presents itself. Are you also worried about inflation that is sort of, you know, eating the purchasing power of your cash that you hold there? I am. And that, and that's why not everything is cash, right? Um, and, uh, and why just holding cash and not doing anything with it is probably bad because essentially you lose um, somewhere between 5 and 10% in the current environment. Um, if you just hold cash and do nothing with it. But even now, I think uh, since we have interest rates uh, coming back and you can get uh, savings accounts with banks and, and get at least a few percentage points um, a year in return, um, it might be a compromise that you're willing to take, right? Like uh, The way I think about it is it's better to um, miss out on those 5 to 10% uh, yield or appreciation um, by not having my money invested in the stock market. Uh, so what I'm referring to is like long-term, I think you can expect that the stock market grows somewhere between five and 10%, depending on how you read the studies and whether or not you reinvest the dividends. I think it's okay to miss out on that uh, with a part of your portfolio and even take a hit uh, in purchasing power of somewhere between five and 10%. If you feel you can then make investments, real estate, uh, venture, um, maybe certain single stocks uh, down the road that will give you a 10x on your investment, right? Because you have cash when others don't have cash and you're able to participate in opportunities that, that others might not have access to. Yeah, exactly. And that is a, a, an important difference to make. I think it's not about buying the dip of the stock market because we both don't know when that will be. Maybe it will fall more, maybe not. Who, nobody knows. But striking when you have really good opportunities at hand. How do you identify them when the whole, the whole, let's say, environment is way more fearful? How do you identify the opportunities? Might be real estate, might be venture investing, where you say, here, I see a potential for a 10x return. I think for me, it's a mix of experience, having seen uh, where certain assets go during a bull market and having uh, trust in what I think will do well again in the next uh, bull run. And then more important, and also I think where the fundamentals are right, right? Like I, I 
tend to believe that as a venture investor, this is the time when it's most exciting for me to invest because the signal to noise ratio is a lot better right now. There's less marketing plays. There's less crowded investment rounds. Um, if you can invest now, that you get access to some really interesting opportunities. And then second, a lot of it is also gut feeling. Um, and that certainly comes from experience and having seen things like certain investments play out over the years. But it's also just, you know, sometimes I feel like I, I just, I fall in love with a founder or with a, with a certain project or with a piece of real estate or whatever it may be. I just feel it's right. And then uh, hopefully I'm, I'm more often right than wrong. Um, and that's how I think, I think the gut feeling will always be part of uh, my investment process. Um, there's certainly asset classes where you can model things out a bit better. And then there's other asset classes like venture where gut feeling is quite a big part of the equation, but I think it's, mm -hmm. it's part across the spectrum. It's always part of it. I like what you just said, because it reminds me of something that I read from Naval. He basically said money in that case is your leverage. You no know, more money means more leverage. And you basically get paid for your judgment and the judgment you build by experience. So I think that's a really nice relationship, so to speak. You learn, you grow your experience, and therefore you also make, hopefully, better judgment. And then with more money, you can make better decisions to have a leverage to get a return on that. I agree. By the way, leverage is an interesting topic as well, right? Like it's something yeah. that I... That I, except for uh, a mortgage on our house, I uh, generally avoid. I, I just don't feel comfortable being uh, leveraged because I know that markets will not always just go up. Um, and during a bull market, sometimes you might look like a fool because you're missing out on some extra gains. Um, but I think overall, um, it's uh, that kind of mindset has worked well for me where I just I don't feel comfortable leveraging myself. I I either can hold an asset outright or or I don't. Um, uh, so in that sense, I, I think that's something to keep in mind as well. Like uh, it's it can be dangerous to get FOMO when you're an investor. Um, and FOMO during a bull market typically means people will tell you, oh, why don't you take on leverage and try and multiply your, your yield? And especially because you never know how long these market rallies last, right? Um, I remember back three years ago now, almost when COVID started, I at that point had a feeling that markets would have to follow the real world um, idea that like our economy was not doing well, right? This virus clearly had an impact, but at the same time, markets were being flooded with uh, zero interest loans and um, there was a lot of capital available. And so that led to this rally that lasted for almost two years. Um, and for, I always felt like the market was acting pretty irrationally. I mean, I know in hindsight, it's always easy to uh, dissect why some, right? Like, and, and so it's clear now why uh, we saw that rally. But I, from the very start of COVID, I had a feeling that like the markets must come down at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it, it just felt natural to me that this could not go on for forever. Yeah, I remember our conversations at the gym about that. We were like, there's going to be a, a huge downturn in the whole markets with everything that's happening and exactly the opposite then took place. You never know. I think that's, that's why the, the idea of like creating a process, something that you want to stick to um, and then just following that process without being emotional about what happened today, yesterday and what might happen tomorrow yeah. is the right way to invest as a mostly passive investor. 
100%. And then I think as, a, as an active investor, if you're running a hedge fund or even a venture fund, like you are being paid to spend time and to be right and research this. But as a passive investor, I think just buying boring um, ETFs and, and sticking to that strategy for me, has, that's like what lets me sleep at night. Yeah, that, that's also a good point. You know, distress level. I also think that simplicity clearly wins here. You know, if you do something consistently, it's very easy. Then you also execute it. The likelihood of executing is much higher. And at the same time, it significantly reduces your stress. If you know, I only do one trade into that ETF a month and the rest of the month, I can actually live and enjoy my life. I think that's a huge factor to not underestimate because you can drive yourself crazy by checking, you know, oh, is the US dollar going up or down? I should now enter into a trade, whatever. Like, if that's fun for you, do that by all means. But I think for most people, that just adds a whole nother level of stress that you don't need in your life. Maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to also ask you a bit about like how you look at the market. Because I, I know two or three years ago, you even created a, a course for people that wanted <laughs> to uh, invest more. And yeah. Uh, just to ask, like, what were the asset classes that you've really liked in the last two, three years and what your experience has been? Yeah, so um, for me, it was clearly stock market. So I just focus on the ETF uh, once a month, very consistently, the same amount every month investing it. So very simple, very boring, but also very low stress in that regard. I then shifted a bit more um, because I got more interested. There were personal connections to look into real estate abroad. Um, for me, that was uh, Lisbon in Portugal because I really loved that city. And so I looked more into that to understand how you could structure that, how a setup there would look like. And I found an interesting deal that I'm working on right now. And then also shifted more again due to a bit of you know personal network and, and personal interest into the venture space. But that's still the smallest part because comparably much higher risk uh, compared to everything else, it should also be a lower uh, part of the of the net worth. That that would be the sensible way to do it. Yeah, that's the scenario where I can still learn. <laughs> but you never know. But uh, for me, that's it's it's learning by doing and and building that up slowly, in a in a good proportion towards the other two asset classes. And I I like that because you also I mean with Swisspreneur and other initiatives that you're part of, right? Like you spend a lot of time thinking about startups, especially in Switzerland, and looking at them, um, dissecting what works, what doesn't work. And so I think um, it's a very sensible approach where you spent a decent amount of your time with the startup ecosystem before you started investing. You really understand now what makes a good founder. So I think that gives you a, a very good idea of what's happening in the market and uh, how to uh, tell a good a generally good idea and good founder and combination of everything that goes into a business from from a bad one. And uh, so I, I think I'm excited to see that you've kind of ventured out in, into that asset class as well. It's also a lot of fun, to be honest, you know, and I think it goes a bit back to what we said before. It's this experience, you know, of being exposed and talking to many, many people that sort of allows you to hopefully then, time will tell, make better judgments. But uh, yeah. We'll see about that. It's certainly very fun and very exciting to to do that. Good. Um, one thing I, although you know, I've been exposed to a little bit, much less than you, is the whole crypto part, right? So I'm curious to to see your take. Do you still have hope for crypto, or do you think that many projects will, you know, go bankrupt and will end because of everything that is happening uh, right now, basically? 
so I'm extremely excited about the bear market, right? And I, I've been saying that for the last two years because I think bear markets are there to build. Um, what I mean by that is there's less hype, there's less marketing noise. Um, it's all about what is something where we can where we can create tangible value. And ultimately, that's what it should always be about. But um, during bull runs, it's sometimes uh, people get distracted and they focus more on partnership announcements and great PR. So I'm, I'm very excited about everything that I see uh, going on in crypto. I think, uh, for one, the, the bear market, it, it, it functions as a filter for bad entrepreneurs, bad ideas, right? They cannot raise anymore. And so that's a very important signal as well, kind of for the whole space to become healthy again, like to trim some fat. But then what comes out of it usually is the most exciting part. I think if you look back, how many exciting companies were created during the 2007, 8, 9 recession that we had um, as part of the global financial crisis? Those are, those are some of the biggest companies that uh, are there today. And I think even during the last uh, bull, uh, sorry, bear market in crypto in 2018, 2019, a lot of innovation came from there. New layer ones that were finally finalized. Um, lots of DeFi came out of that. And I would say that is the first real application of crypto. Um, since then, I would say the people that work in a crypto company or some sort of like blockchain related uh, function has probably 10 x um, because there's been, that's the, that's the good thing about uh, the bull runs, right? It makes it sexy. It makes it interesting. People look where things um, seem to be going well. So it's brought a lot of talent in and that talent uh, for the most part is now staying, building products and then, um, in a year or two, we'll probably see the result of this crunch time that usually happens during bear markets. Yeah, right. And, you know, I think it's also a natural cleansing of the whole market and the whole ecosystems, as you said. And I think that's a very, very good thing. So it seems to be a good timing to have some cash laying around and to do some good investments now, hopefully. Yeah. If we want to summarize this a bit, you know, we now talked about the different asset classes, how we see the future, how we see the markets. If you had to summarize your investing in uncertain times advice, what are your two tips that you would give to the listeners and viewers? Uh, I think one is uh, stick to a system uh, because the worst that you could do is buy when prices are high and sell when prices are low. Um, so think of a thesis or a system for how you want to invest in different asset classes and then follow that consistently. Don't let emotions take over. And second, um, I think it's also good to to just keep enough cash. If, if you have a day job, um, make sure your day job um, continues to pay for your expenses so you don't rely on selling your assets um, during a market downturn to finance your lifestyle. Or if, if that's not the case, at least keep enough cash on the side so that you can uh, withstand the period of one to two years during, during a bear market without selling any of your investments. Because I, I think if... If there's anything that is pretty clear, it's like either you have to panic early um, if you're an active investor and you see a downturn come, then you make a conscious decision and you get out. Mm -hmm. But the worst time to sell would be now when prices are low um, yeah. and uh, clearly so, right? Like we've been in a downturn for a year or so. Um, so those would be my two things. Uh, try and uh, build something that doesn't rely on your emotions or sets you up for success even when your emotions go up and down. And then second, uh, either have a day job that finances your lifestyle or set aside enough cash that you can 
uh, weather a, a storm for one to two years. I love that because both points are sort of a sure, certain recipe or sure recipe if you don't follow them to lose money in the market. And you just want to avoid that. So really great recommendations. I do have some rapid fire questions for you, Cedric, to wrap up the session. And also want to open if anyone wants to ask you a question in the comments, just uh, leave it there and we'll pick it up now in the last part. But uh, let's directly start with the rapid fire questions. What is your favorite asset class to invest in? Hmm. Uh, so I'll give two answers. Uh, one, definitely venture is my favorite asset class. I, I just, I'm so excited about seeing entrepreneurs succeed and getting them started um, investing at pre-seed seed or now with the venture studio, even one step before and incubating yeah. ideas, bringing ideas to life. That that's what my, uh, yeah, what I have a lot of passion for. And then second, intellectually, I really like uh, finding strategies to create yield in these kind of sideways markets. Uh, so I briefly talked about the options strategy and just mm -hmm. figuring out how to, um, yeah, just becoming more financially literate, I think is my journey for this year and next year. Um, getting more exposure to uh, different strategies and constantly discovering new asset classes. I think it's those two. Uh, so for one, venture, definitely. That's my number one. That's what I'm passionate about. That's where uh, my heart is. And then second, also learning about new strategies, uh, especially for sideways markets, um, is where I get a lot of intellectual stimulation from. Yeah, I wanted to say that sounds like an amazing intellectual challenge to solve. Let's go for the second one. Regret making an investment or regret not making it? Uh, I, I mean, there's definitely examples. Uh, well, definitely I regret not making certain uh, investments. We. We keep a list of um, what we call an anti-portfolio at Tomahawk. So those are investments that in hindsight we should have made. Um, and it's uh, it's good because it, it teaches us a lot, right? Like we we look at uh, why did we not make it at the time? Was it did, it, did we just have a different opinion at the time? And then that's totally fine. But if we did not end up making the investment because our process was too slow or we uh, just weren't able or our checklist wasn't right, um, then that's something we want to uh, improve from, improve from, and it's quite humbling, right? Because you uh, you meet these uh, founders of of unicorns when they uh, just start out, and they, for some of them, I even gave them feedback on the pitch deck, and then I ended up not investing, mm -hmm. and that's uh, definitely um, moments that uh, that are part of the investor journey. And then second, do I regret not uh, making an investment? Um, regret is a strong word. I would answer with the same thing. Like if I made the investment, because at the time I thought it was a great investment, then I don't regret it. And it's just, mm -hmm. that's just part of my role and it just happens. Um, not everything can work out. Um, but if I ended up making the investment based on uh, kind of a, a false data basis. Uh, so I didn't spend enough time. Uh, I didn't properly go through my checklist. I maybe yeah. left out part of the due diligence that I would normally do. Then, yeah, then it's a good reminder that uh, those processes are there for a certain reason. Perfect. What is your favorite country to live in? Because, you know, these days you, again, travel quite often. Mm. What is your favorite country to live in these days? My favorite country to live. Um, uh, so I'm going to go with what 
came to mind first actually really uh so this this winter i was uh in switzerland for just a few days but i finally made it back into the snow i hadn't been on skis in i think 13 or 14 years well and that was just a reminder of like how diverse switzerland is the hiking during the summer the city life in zurich the, the skiing during the winter like i really like the diversity um the second one that comes to mind i really like bali i finally gone back after COVID last october and Bali for me just has a very positive vibe. There's so many positive emotions. Um, people from all over the world come together, very international. So it's kind of a, uh, a hot pot of like different cultures, different sentiments, uh, lots of like different cultures. And that's definitely something I value as well. Um, then I also always like going back to the US. It's just um, such a diverse place as well and so many bright minds, so many great entrepreneurs there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I mean, from this century, you can probably tell I, I, I'm still not ready to settle. Um, there's not one place where I would spend um, all my time, but uh, I consider myself very fortunate that I do get to travel quite a bit and experience these different environments, not just yeah. for a weekend, but for uh, weeks and months at a time. Sure. It's certainly a great setup if you can live and work that way. The last question for you, Cedric, you're also that. So uh, just Quick question, what's the best thing about being a dad? Mm. Uh, I mean, there's definitely uh, a lot of joy that's hard to put in words, just seeing um, a a human grow up and learn. I mean, uh, so Lana, our daughter, is now two and a half, and uh, she's not fluent in the sense that she she doesn't speak fluently yet, but she understands Russian, English, German, Swiss German, Without problems, can switch back and forth. Um, she uh, she's going to like a playgroup um, here in Barcelona right now, and she just picks things up. She's she's able to communicate with other kids from all kinds of backgrounds, and that's definitely fascinating to see. And then, um, I mean, one thing that I uh, will never get enough of is just like cuddling with her. Like if um, before she goes to bed, she's like, "Give me a hug." and uh, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Lana. Like that's, I think, moments that uh, that I'll forever cherish. Yeah, that sounds amazing, Cedric. It was a pleasure having you again. I hope that we can make the next session a bit shorter uh, with the shorter break in between. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, I'm already looking very much forward to our next live session, and even more to hopefully seeing you again in person very soon. Likewise, can't wait to see you. Thanks so much for having me, and we'll talk soon. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.